0: So, Father, we affirm what we just sang. God, you are reigning. And your kingdom, Lord God, is from eternity to eternity. And thank you for calling, for inviting us, Lord God, into it. Even some, just this week, for the first time, join the vast throng of people who are a part of your kingdom, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice in that. Now, Father, we want to take a peek at your kingdom, and we declare what Jesus said, we should pray daily that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a sneak peek into what that looks like and give us the courage to participate in it. So God, I do pray, as I've prayed many times before, that you would both be what I say and that you would be with how I say it. May the seed of your word fall on good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm praying yesterday. I'm like, all right, Lord, what is it uh, you want me to preach on? And I've already got a list of options for him to pick from. And uh, he didn't pick any of those options. And um, he's led me to a passage of scripture that I am I, um, um, coming up the, this, this coming Friday. I have a huge opportunity. It's probably one of the most flattering invitations I've ever gotten. Uh, uh, the church that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to pastor invited me to come preach there this Friday for a special occasion. Uh, so I want to I want to share with you what I believe to be a word from the Lord that he wants me to to deposit into you that I'm also going to share with that church. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me again say thank you, thank you, thank you for the invitation to come and to hang out with you all. Um, It's it's been a great week and uh, this really is a special place. And uh, I've experienced some God moments myself uh, in the years since I've been coming here. And uh, uh, so that the leadership, whether it's Mike, Dave, others, uh, that they would entrust uh, you to me, uh, I don't take lightly. And so I am incredibly honored uh, to be here. Some of you have asked kind of how can you keep up with our ministry. Um, If you go to your app store and you just type in A-L-C-F, A-L-C-F. Uh, That's a free app that's got all of our messages and stuff on it. And we've got a YouTube channel, all that good stuff. So you can keep track of what's happening there. Pick me up in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. The guy who writes this, his name is Paul. And Paul says these words, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. If I was preaching this in the 90s to a different crowd, I'd entitle this message, Naughty by Nature. (laughs) Maybe 10% of you got that? Not sure. Like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God... Love those two words, but God, someone should have said amen right there, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I told you, uh, I believe it was yesterday, um, that uh, whenever I'm with my father, I always quote Proverbs 13:22 a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a good man leaves inheritance to his children's children, and I always end with the question, Dad, are you a good man? And uh, uh, a couple years ago, we were on the north side uh, of Atlanta, uh, where his home is, and we were actually doing lunch at the Cheesecake Factory there, and again, tongue-in-cheek, Proverbs 13:22 rolls off my tongue. A good man leaves inheritance to his children's children. Uh, Dad, are you a good man? And he goes, funny you should bring that up. I've made some changes to the will. (laughs) I'm like, really? Well, what are those changes? He says, "It's interesting, Brian. I sat down, here we are in the state of Georgia. He says I sat down with my lawyer and my lawyer says, Dr. Luritz, I'm looking forward to going over your will and uh, but before we do that, you just need to know this. I see you have four kids, three of them are biological, one of them is adopted. According to state law, at any given moment, you can amend or edit out of your will your biological children, but you should also know that Georgia state law stipulates that at no given point can you amend or edit out of your will, your adopted child. That child is secure. Now this blesses me, because oftentimes when I read of um, the word adoption in a theological grid, I I interpret it through a sociological fallacy, and that is thinking that for some reason, adoption is second-class citizenship. And yet, as Paul opens up this stunning letter that he's written to the Ephesians, he begins in chapter 1 by saying that when you got saved, we were adopted into the family of God. And right on the heels of that, he says, and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The idea of sealing in Roman times communicated two ideas. One, it communicated authenticity. When Caesar wanted to send a document, oftentimes what he would do is he would take the insignia of his ring and dip it in hot wax. And then would take that and form an impression of the seal of his ring on that document he was sending out. So that when you got this document and you saw the seal of Caesar, what it communicated was, this is legitimate. It is the real deal. When you got saved, Paul says, the Holy Spirit Put his imprint on your life. You're the real deal. Authentic. But not only that, the sealing of the Spirit communicates security. Now, I'm not here to meddle with you, and I'm not here to kind of disentangle what your pastor has preached to you, but I interpret that along with a host of other incredibly godly individuals that I believe when we get to heaven, you'll see that we're right. At the sealing of the Holy Spirit communicates eternal security, that Jesus says, those in whom are in the Father's hand, no one can remove them, implication being not even yourself. So the question is never, did you lose salvation? The question is, did you ever have it to begin with? This is the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is why John would say this. They went out from us because they were never really of us. We are secure. Adopted into the family of God. I don't know about you, Stephen, but cue the Hammond B3 organ. Let's take a couple laps around Mount Hermon. We can have some church right now. And then he comes to chapter 2. Chapter 2, he gives us a stunning view of the gospel. The euangelion, which means good news. And yet before Paul gives us the good news, he begins with the bad news. Because we can't really appreciate the good news until we see it against the backdrop of the bad news, which is our sin. When I fell in love with Corey. Met her in church, boy. Again, I wanted to be a part of her disciple-making process. And when I, I was finishing up my time at Talbot, which means I was Poe, not poor. I couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was Poe. <laughs> Vienna sausages and Top Ramen, those were my roommates, man. I tell you, I was just broke. And so I began looking for a ring for her. And uh, whenever I'd walk into a jeweler and I'd give them the specs to the ring I wanted to have for this engagement ring, I, I noticed that the jewelers never took out these diamonds and just plopped them down on the glass case. They never did that. Instead, they took out a dark black piece of velvet cloth and put those diamonds on that dark black velvet cloth. And against that background, they sparkled and popped a little bit brighter. That's what Paul is doing here. Before he can put the diamond down, he doesn't just plop it for us, the diamond of the gospel. He now rolls out in the opening verses of chapter 2 the dark black velvet cloth of our sin. He says, unless you take a peek at the rearview mirror of your sin and who you are prior to Christ, you will never appreciate the gospel. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Just the other day, Gary, walking us through John chapter 3, says, listen, prior to Christ, uh, we needed the work of the Holy Spirit to give us the new birth just as we had nothing to do with us coming into this world physically. Paul elaborates on that. He says, look, you were, you were dead. Listen, I'm not getting into any kind of systematic theology stuff, but the last time I checked, dead people don't make choices. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. We were completely sinful. Sin isn't just something we do. It's not just behavior. It's our disposition. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and infected all great doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean I'm as bad as I could possibly be. As it relates to degree, it means that sin has colored every aspect of my life. That's why I love what Pastor Tom Schrader, who has since gone home to be with the Lord, says. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. It colors every part of who we are. There's none righteous. No, not One. Then he goes on to say, among whom we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now some of you are going, wait a minute. What do you mean? I was an object of God's wrath? I thought God loved me. How can God love me and be angry with me at the same time? You must not have kids. (laughs) Because if you are a parent, you understand that, that love and wrath can commingle. In fact, I'm thinking now of jo- Abraham Joshua Schell, that great Jewish rabbi who marched in the streets of Selma, Alabama with Martin Luther King Jr. In his great book, Sabbath, I commend it to you. He says, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. That's why... I think the most dehumanizing thing you can ever do to another human being is to ignore them. Anger. Hear me now. Anger is actually an attribute of God. Jesus expressed righteous indignation. Paul would say, in your anger, do not sin, which tells me there is such a thing as expressing anger without sinning. Anger is actually a sign of profound love and care because anger exposes what we really care about. The worst thing God could ever do to you is Romans 1, that he would turn you over to a reprobate mind. That God would shrug his shoulders and say, go ahead, is the worst thing ever. So the fact that he gets angry is a sign of his profound love for you. If you did not matter to him, he would never get angry. But God... We were dead, objects of his wrath, being, I love this, rich in mercy. God's mercy is inexhaustible. He's got more mercy than we've got mess. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Aren't you glad you woke up? On July 26th, with July 26th mercies and not July 25th mercies. For by grace you have been saved. My friend Matt Chandler says that grace fundamentally means you didn't eat your dinner and you still get dessert. Mercy means to withhold what you do deserve grace means to give what you don't deserve for by grace you have been saved when I went to seminary again I was I was broke um, my father I told you had told me on the lawn there at Bible College graduation day college was a Partnership between me, him, and Jesus. Grad school was me and Jesus. He's praying for me. Walked you through that yesterday. I had no idea how, this thing was going to get, how I was going to get seminary paid for. Um, I hate to admit this to you. I, I got a scholarship to go to seminary uh, called the SURS scholarship S U R R S, scholarship for under resourced and represented students. In other words, I didn't get a scholarship because of my GPA. Uh, I didn't get a scholarship because of any merit on my own. I actually got a scholarship for something I had no control over, and that is I'm African-American. It bothers me to tell you that. And some of you are maybe a little irritated by that. Because what you would love to hear me say is got the 4.0 in college, that got me the scholarship, I maintained the 4.0 in grad school, my merit got me in, my merit kept me in, there's the boasting. And if you're bothered by that, friends, let me remind you that in the kingdom of God there are no merit-based scholarships. You were failing. In fact, to get you in, God had to grade on a curve. <laughs> you know, when I was in grammar school and I'd, I'd fail a test, the first thing I'd do is I'd conduct a little poll right outside that classroom. What'd you get? 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 Because I knew if everybody blew it like I did, the teacher would have to grade on a curve. But inevitably, there'd be some know it all student that I'd want to lay hands on and not for prayer. <laughs> why did I get upset? Because he messed up my curve. Friends, that's why they crucified Jesus. Prior to Jesus coming, humanity made themselves the standard. But when Jesus showed up on the scene living the perfect life, he revealed, you're all failing. Yeah, you may be boasting in your 50, feeling good about yourself because your neighbor got a 30. But in the great book of God, both are F's. There are no merit-based scholarships. And then he ends verse 10 by saying, we are his workmanship greek word poema from which we get the english word poem work of art think of my own mother my grandmother her mother had an affair with a married man my mother is the product of that affair prior to my grandmother getting pregnant my mother she had had an abortion And it baffles me. How do you get pregnant by a married man? You've already had an abortion. Why didn't you do that again? God had an assignment. We're created on purpose. For a purpose. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you. (laughs) You was a surprise. But in the economy of God, there are no surprises. Poema. The gospel. Some of y'all are wondering, am I done? You sure about that? The words of Scripture are inspired, but the little chapter divisions and headings are not. We must keep that in mind, because in many of our Bibles, in between verses 10 and 11 is a little chapter division that the codifiers, the editors, I should say, in an attempt to be helpful, I've labeled In my Bible, there's three words at the end of verse 10 before verse 11. Again, they're not inspired. They're, they're, they're an organizational tidbit. Mine says, one in Christ. I actually think this is not helpful. Because it makes it sound like that what now Paul is going to talk about beginning in verse 11 is completely disconnected from what he's talked about in verses 1 through 10. We know this is not the case. Verse 11 begins with, therefore. So, what he is about to say, he is connecting to what he has just said. And what he has just said is the gospel. Therefore, remember that at one time, here it is, don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out, you Gentiles in the flesh. Uh-oh. He now is talking about the issue of ethnicity. Yeah, I didn't think you are going to shout on that one. <laughs> So someone's like, just give us the gospel. Paul says, how we relate to people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like us is a profound commentary on what we believe about the gospel. He says, I want to connect ethnicity, ethnic relationships to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. Now, I want you to calm down. This is not angry black man time. Breathe. Breathe. One of my white staff guys said to me, Brian, if you could live at any time in world history, when would it be? I said, a black man? Now. 1753 wasn't good for me, 1853 wasn't good, 1953 wasn't good for me. Is it perfect? No. I'm incredibly hopeful. Listen, man, I I own a house in the Bay. I ain't mad at nobody. So relax. You are not about to catch a biblical beatdown. But notice what he says here. You Gentiles, he says, let me me talk to you Gentiles in the flesh, which means Paul ain't colorblind. In fact, John says, Revelation chapter 5, I looked up into heaven, and I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How can you tell on sight? Differences in ethnicity unless you see color. Race has done such a number on us in America that we think our ethnic differences are a fruit of the fall. If ethnic differences are going to be in heaven, it is not a fruit of the fall. God has not just created my spirit. He's also created my body. And I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am to be redemptively black. Now, because of this, I do not exalt my ethnicity over my identity in Christ but neither am i called to eradicate it the tension is i must learn to subjugate not eradicate my blackness to my jesusness but i am black which means as a black man there are certain things i don't do i don't hike just not how we roll. It's just not. <laughs> my, my, my mentor, Dennis Rainey, good old redneck from the uh, Ozark Mountains, he called me up one time. and says, hey, Brian, why don't you fly to Little Rock, man? There's some things I want to just talk to you about and pray with you over. We can just take a hike. And I said, now, when you say hike, like walk through the woods. and like, that's fun for you? Like you up that mountain for what? And then once we get up there, how are we going to get back down? Like, that's just not It's just not, I know some of you guys are thinking, well, wait a minute, Brian, you're stereotyping. Watch the Discovery Channel for a week and count how many quiches and Tyrones you see on the Discovery Channel. Certain news stories, you know, black people ain't got nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. You have never heard of a black person getting mauled by a bear. just won't happen. Some of us remember the Crocodile Hunter? We we, we remember him, right? Little insider conversation I let you in on. When he died, me and all my black friends said, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Now we will wear crocodiles. We ain't gonna wrestle crocodiles. That's just not how we roll, right? Even some of our worship songs, you know, black people ain't had nothing to do with. Oceans. (laughs) Keisha didn't write oceans. She just got her hair done. She's not talking about no ocean. We are different. We are different. We are different. We are different. Listen, and the goal of being brothers and sisters in Christ is not to clone one another into our image. It's not to be colorblind. It's to celebrate those differences as fellow image bearers of the Imago Dei. See, this is biblical stuff. So Romans 1.16, I know we've quoted it and memorized it evangelistically. I need you to hear it sociologically. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first and also the Greek. Read the book of Acts Through that lens, when Paul walks into town to plant a church, his desire is not just to reach the suburbs. He wants to reach the whole town. So he has two questions when he walks into a town. Number one, where's where's the synagogue? I want to hang out with the Jews. He shares the gospel with them. In Athens, he does that. In Ephesus, he does that. But when he's done with that, some of them come to know Christ. He's not done. He says, now where do the Gentiles hang out? Athens, they say Mars Hill. Ephesus, they say the Hall of Tyrannus. He then goes there. Some Gentiles come to know Christ. Now he's got a problem because these two groups hate each other. So what does he do? Unfortunately, if, he was, if Paul was following the American church growth movement of the mid to late 20th century, here's what he would have done. He would have started two churches, one on the north side for the Gentiles, one on the south side for the Jews, or maybe if he's following the church of the 21st century, maybe one church with multiple uh, campuses so he can keep his demographics apart. I want to be careful there. I'm not saying multi-site is wrong. I've done multi-site. But sometimes people use that as an excuse for segregation. Paul says, No. If you've been reconciled to Christ, no matter how you vote, no matter what your skin color works, I'm not starting multiple churches, I'm starting one church, and I want you to flesh out horizontally what God in Christ has already done for you vertically. So that's why I want you to understand the roots of the New Testament church was always multi-ethnic. We veered so far off course that we think it's a new thing. I'm often asked the question as I coach leaders in multi-ethnic churches and as I lead a multi-ethnic church, well, Brian, how do you do that? Listen, if people are still coming to church out of relationships, then sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. If you want a diverse church, it begins with your dinner table. What does your dinner table look like? Does your dinner table show the reconciling work of Jesus Christ? Some of you all, and, and, and I get it, you know, you got some minorities who have, are just wallowing in hurt to the point where seeds of, and roots of bitterness has taken place. I would say that's out of step with the gospel. We must learn to forgive. Other individuals shrug their shoulders, can take it or leave it. I would also say out of step with the gospel. Because Revelation 5 says that Jesus Christ, when he died, he purchased people. Agorizo. It's a supermarket term. It's it's a picture of Jesus going down the aisles of humanity and Purchasing people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Do you know in heaven there will be no such thing as an unreached people group that's missing? The intentionality of Jesus. Paul, why do you do this? Look at verse 12. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, here it is, and is broken down in his flesh, underline this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall spoke of the temple at Jerusalem. You understand anything about the temple, four courts, outermost court, court of the Gentiles, then the court of women, then the court of Israelites, then the court of priests. By the way, in Matthew 21, when Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, many of us have been taught that he's reacting to the commercialization of the house of the Lord, and that is partly true. But where had they set up their wares, these Jewish leaders? In the only place the ethnically other could worship. I think Jesus is also reacting to a dismissive form of racism. That ticks Jesus off. In the 1870s, they actually found the dividing wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the other courts, and written on that dividing wall were words to the effect of, proceed no further upon fear of death. You do understand why Paul goes to jail for the last time he's falsely accused of taking his dear friend Trophimus into the forbidden parts of the temple. Who's your Trophimus? Who's your Trophimus? This has been so good for me personally. We all need people in our lives who just see it differently. And how God uses other people to help shape our perspectives. All of us have experienced that in marriage, right? Our spouses are so different from us. Different theology on the toilet seat. Different, <laughs> different ways of spending money. Different sleep patterns. And, and we've seen how the differences, if you just hang in there, have actually made us better people. Corey Edwards, professor of sociology at The Ohio State University. She always makes me say The Ohio State University. She says, if your social network is primarily homogenous, that actually entrenches bias and racism. We all have biases. And we need people in our lives who see it different from us to help shape us. If you're a Fox News person, you need to do life with some MSNBC and CNN people, and vice versa. So if your only voices are people affirming your biases, you're woefully short of what God has for you. You need other people. So my own life, Whenever the enemy wants me to write off my white brothers and sisters, Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, "Uh uh-uh. You've got some dear white brothers who have mentored you. There's a couple, Adam and Nikki, we go on vacation every year from Sweden. There's dear friends God places in my life. Why does he do this? He ends by saying that he might create in himself one new man. Paul is writing in Greek, and there are several Greek words for new. One Greek word is neos, N-E-O-S. Neos speaks of something that is new as it relates to time. So it's the 2019 Ford Explorer. It's the latest MacBook Pro. It's the latest, I don't know, 757 to come off the assembly line. That's Neos. Paul doesn't use the word Neos. When he uses the phrase one new man, he uses the word Kainos. K-A-I-N-O-S. Kainos speaks of something that is so new the world doesn't have a category for it. It's the idea of invention. Notice the context. He uses that word in the context of a church where Jew and Gentile come together. So that Nias might be the latest MacBook Pro. Kynos is the first computer ever. Neas might be the 2019 Ford Explorer. Kynos is Henry Ford's Model T. Nias might be the latest 757. Kind us is me standing on Kitty Hawk Beach in the early 1900s watching the Wright brothers. Can, Can you imagine seeing that and then trying to describe that to your friends? You have no category. Mind blown. Did you know the only place you could walk into in the first century world and see meaningful relationships among the ethnically other was the local church? You had trouble describing that to your friends. Mind blown. Blown. Is the world's mind blown when they look at your dinner table? When they look at your friendships? Again, this isn't just a word for one ethnic group of people. Jesus Christ didn't die for us to huddle in our own homogenous circles. There's a great book out there called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. I close with these two stories. We all know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a bit of a prodigy at the age of 21. He graduates with his PhD. Then he comes in the 1930s at the age of 21 uh, to do a fellowship at Union Seminary, which is a part of Columbia University, which is right in the epicenter of Harlem. Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to Harlem in the midst of the Harlem Renaissance. Now, Bonhoeffer would say, in hindsight, I thought I was a believer, uh, but I wasn't. But because I thought I was a believer, I visit several other churches. He says those churches happen to be white. They didn't quite do it for me. So he says, I, I finally settled in on the Abyssinia Baptist Church, which is a large black church still meeting today in Harlem. He said, it was there for the first time that I heard the gospel in all of its glorious implications preached. He says, so I joined the church and followed black leadership taught Sunday school. I befriended a man named Albert who turned me on to Negro spirituals, which he fell in love with. He says, Albert took me on a trip with him down south, and there I saw Jim Crow. He says, it changed my life. In fact, do you know that phrase, cost of discipleship? Bonhoeffer didn't make that phrase up. He got it from his black Pastor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, I do not go back to Europe and stand up for the oppressed Jews unless I first hear the gospel to the oppressed in Harlem. Immersing himself among the ethnically other changed his life. I like mayonnaise. You ever thought about mayonnaise? Like really thought about mayonnaise. (laughs) Mayonnaise is, is a bit of a chemical anomaly. It's got stuff in it that don't normally get along, like oil and water. So how do you get these two disparate communities who historically don't like each other to live in close community? You chemistry people understand how that happens. Mayonnaise has something called an emulsifier. In mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. Emulsifiers bring stuff together, even stuff that don't like each other. So it's like in mayonnaise, egg says, come here, oil, hang out with me. Come here, water, hang out with me. And when I become the focal point, you'll look up one day and you'll be blown away by who you're doing life with. Friends, Jesus Christ is our emulsifier. It's the gospel. When he becomes the focal point of your life, when like Pastor Gary said last night, you really make up your mind to follow him. You'll be shocked at the places and people he brings your way. So, Father, we bless you. We thank you for this stunning passage, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You've made us alive. That You're rich in mercy and that by grace we have been saved and that we are your poema, your workmanship. But thank you, Ephesians 2 doesn't end at the end of verse 10. You call us to do life with people who don't look like, think like, act like, or vote like you, like me. So we thank you for this and how it was modeled in the life of Jesus, just looking at his disciples and to think that here's Levi the tax collector who was viewed as a sellout doing life with Simon the zealot, their version of Isis. And yet, what do you pray in John 17? Make them one. Not the same, but one. So, Lord God, show us what this looks like in our lives. We need each other. In this time, Lord God, when we can look at a person's Facebook page or blog posts and look at the comments, Lord God, there's so much division. May the church be leading the way. Show, show us how this translates into our our context. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.